0: Um, the other uh, the other week, Susan and I uh, took the boys to the GO Train here, put them on it, sent them to Toronto, to spend the weekend with their sister, and uh, so the three of them had a good time. It was it was great, and they, what they did was they did something fun. They went and they bought a Fuji Film disposable camera. They could go around and take some photos of their uh, adventure, and uh, together they just kind of hung out and had a good time. And uh, it'll be interesting to see those pictures when they get developed in eight to nine months. Uh, you know, what, you know, kind of what those look like. It was fun for them to snap these shots. And the thing with these, um, thing with these disposable cameras, for those of you that remember using those, is uh, who knows how it's going to turn out. You know, you've you, you got to wait and see when it gets developed. And then when it does get developed, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be hashtag no filter. I mean, every picture that they took is just what what you got is what you got. I think the the one photo I, nigel 's the most excited about is that outside of her, uh, they were walking down the street outside of her apartment in Toronto there, and there was a, uh, a dead rat that he decided to call uh, Flat Stanley because it was apparently got run over. So uh, he took a selfie with Flat Stanley. I think he's pretty excited about seeing that. And kind of hoping that one doesn't turn out, but... Anyways, the uh, the thing with with uh, the thing with taking f- with photos, you know, back in the day. Anyways, before we're taking them on our phones, is there was no filters. It's so what you saw is what you get. And as we read through the New Testament, all the New Testament letters, the way that they depict the disciples, there's a gritty honesty. There's a there's a hashtag no filter to the New Testament. And uh, it's as you look at the disciples struggle to understand Jesus, struggle to understand the mission of Jesus. Um, it's just it's it's given in a brutal honesty, and it's one of the reasons. There's many reasons, but it's one of the reasons why, from a sociological point of view, the resurrection in the first century is believable, because you've got Greeks and Romans who, culturally speaking, would never abandon their philosophies, their ideologies. Um, to follow the claims of of men like these apostles, who were very clearly not, they they weren't portrayed with a valiant filter. And the Greeks and the Romans were all about their leaders having a hashtag valiance about them. But uh, this is not what we get with the apostles. And overnight, thousands and thousands of Greeks and Romans uh, placed their faith in Christ in the first century. And why did they do that? Why would they turn from things that they and their ancestors had believed for millennia? Why would they turn from those things and worship a risen Jesus Christ? From a sociological point of view, that's a a moment in history, the explosiveness of Christian faith in the first century, that is not easily explainable, because you you don't abandon your views overnight. And in particular in that culture, looking at these disciples with all of their warts, um, It's really tremendous, but Christianity did explode in the first century, and it did explode with the Greeks and Romans, uh, because the witnesses of these apostles is true, um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our text this morning is from Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 32 to 35. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going up before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took the twelve aside again and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. And Jesus said, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us... Whatever we ask. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you ask for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we're able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. For whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life up as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Now, as we've been working through Mark's gospel, chapter by chapter, if you read the first nine chapters of Mark leading up to this, you'll find that Jesus talks about his death Twice. This is the third time that he's shared with greater and greater detail, sort of kind of each time. This is the third time that he's shared with his disciples about his death, and in this case, his resurrection. And understandably, the disciples can't grasp this. They can't grasp it. They don't know what to do with it. It's understandable because, humanly speaking, Jesus' plan makes no sense. Right? How can winning come from dying? How can triumph rise from tragedy? They don't know what to do with what he's saying. And the disciples were fixated on the temporal and the political, so they couldn't even begin to fathom that Jesus' mission was global and eternal. And if we're honest and we look at the disciples' response to Jesus and we think about our own lives as Christians, we uh, realize that we are far more aware of what we want God to do than we are Aware of what God is doing in us through whatever's happening to us. Even if you're here this morning and you are considering Christian faith. And this morning you're exploring, you know, who is this God? Who is this Jesus of Christianity? When you think about God, even for those of you who are in that searching mode. You are more in tune with what you think God should do. Than you are about what God would do in you. So the disciples' inability to grasp this, I think, humanly speaking, is understandable, right? And I want you to notice, so to just draw this out more, look at the Grand Canyon-sized chasm between what Jesus says and then how the disciples respond to this. In, 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 verse, in verse 34, right, Jesus says, I'm going to be delivered to the authorities, I'm going to be mocked, scourged, spit on, killed, and on the third day, I will rise, The disciples go away, think about this, talk about this. They come back, and their response is, "Mm -hmm, yeah, okay. mm -hmm." Um, So Jesus, we've been talking, and we want you to do exactly what we say. Look at the text in in front of you. That's what they say. This is their response. Jesus shares the gospel. They They just can't grasp the gospel. So they hear the gospel, and their response to the gospel is, we want you to do whatever we ask. Again, I think for those of us that have... Uh, been Christians for any length of time, can, we can identify with that kind of naivety. Right? We want to be so quick to be like, silly, disciples' naivety is for kids. But we've all kind of had this sort of naivety about God and about the, the, the depths of what he desires to do in comparison to what we want him to do. And so... This is what happens. They don't say, you know, what, what does eternity mean? What do you mean rise again? What do you mean death? What Jesus explained this to them. They just say, you know, listen up, God. We want you to do whatever we ask. That's like a, that's, that's pretty bold. That's like a toddler coming downstairs, wearing a silk robe, smoking a pipe like they own the place, and then saying to you, I'm going to put in my breakfast order and get the eggs right because, you know, I don't like the, the yolk runny. That's the tone. It, it begs the question, who are you? But look at Jesus' response in verse 36. He says, well, what do you want me to do? This is a divine level of patience and grace, which should encourage you, because this is the the divine level of patience and grace that God has with you and I. This is the divine level of love, the lengths that he goes to to just minister his gospel to his disciples, the lengths that he went to for you and I. The only reason you and I are sitting here is because of this divine patience, this divine grace. In verse 37, they say that they want their their positions of influence and power when they come into their glory. You know, when when you're the prime minister and you get this country back on track, Jesus, we want to have the best seats on your right and on your left in your cabinet. And they say, we want to be on your right and your left when you go into glory. Where was Jesus when he went into glory? The cross. Where were the people on his right and left when he went into glory? They were on crosses. That's why Jesus says you don't even know what you're asking for. Because your definition of glory and mine are two completely different things. Your definition of glory, you have a theology of glory. It's of greatness and aspiring and rising to the top. But the glory that Jesus was headed into is the glory of the cross. Which is the glory of, of, of serving and of loving and of giving and of emptying. It's incredible. And so when you get to verse 38, that's what Jesus says, you know, you don't know what you're, what you're asking for. And he uses these two metaphors of a cup and baptism. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to be baptized? And they're like, we can! And of course, because they're just like, oh man, it's going to be so good when we're in charge of everything. Just imagine how good our lives are going to be when we could just legislate things that benefit us. And so Jesus gives them this metaphor of the cup and the baptism. You see, on the cross, Jesus drank a cup of suffering so that you and I as followers, we get to drink the cup of celebration. On the cross, Jesus was baptized under the waves of God's judgment so that you and I as followers, we can be baptized under the waves of God's grace. And we know, of course, that these apostles, all of them, they did eventually give their lives and they did eventually drink drink cups of suffering and they were baptized under under waves of judgment. They gave their lives for the gospel once they saw the risen Christ and understood what it was Jesus was at was getting at. Now, God is not indifferent to our struggles and our fears as the disciples are thinking about tomorrow, right? They're thinking about the immediate. We think about tomorrow, we think about the immediate. And God is not indifferent to what you have to deal with on Monday. And not only that, but God, God cares very deeply about what is happening to you What we're learning here is that God is going to use absolutely everything that happens to you to do some profound and deep renovating and renewing work in you. And so the disciples have no frame of reference for what God is doing for them, what God is going to do in them. So all they can think about is what they think God should be doing for them. And that's why they come so boldly to Jesus. And that's why we do too at times. When we pray prayers, and we've all prayed them, Even if you're here this morning and you say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a Christian. There's a lot of people, and you may be one of them, who are not professing Christians who pray to God. You know, they cry out when they're in need. This happens all the time. I know many people who do this, who pray, and they're not worshiping Jesus at church, but they'll cry out when they're in a time of need. And when we pray prayers that sound like, teacher, we want you to do... For us, whatever we ask. Now, these are not prayers of faith. These are prayers of, these are worrying in God's direction. Every Christian has prayed that. Oh, God, I want you to do whatever I ask. I'm going through this thing and I need it to work out. And by the way, working out looks like that. And that's what I need you to do. It's not a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of worry. Jesus told his disciples to pray, thy will be done. This whole thing is my will be done. We can all identify with my will be done. We've all done that. The disciples want these positions of power so they can control things and secure a good future and have things go their way. And so they assume that being a follower of Jesus means that you will ascend a position of power so you can control things and secure a good future and have things go your way. But Jesus' mission, this gospel, is that through his life, his death, his resurrection, he will secure for us an eternal future so that we can go through life day to day, so that you can face what you have to face tomorrow, deal with what you have to deal with tomorrow with a sense of confidence and humility. Because you're not so fixated on the temporal, but your heart has actually been liberated by the eternal. But the work of Jesus, the work of his gospel, his perfect life, his atoning death, his divine resurrection, it liberates our souls from being crippled and fixated by needing life to go our way. And you need to see that's what this whole conversation is about for the disciples. Need life to go their way. Verse 42, as Jesus continues to kind of unpack this, he says that, you know, all the other nations, that's why, for those of you new to the scriptures, it says the Gentiles, that was a way of saying every other nation outside of of Israel. So what Jesus says is, all of the other nations... Uh, they exercise their authority by rising in positions of power and influence and then they rule over everybody else. So the disciples are think the plan is Jesus' followers will rise to these positions of influence, they'll rule over everybody else. You can fill stadiums in North America teaching that. Now you can, we are very interested in the idea that because we are God's children we will all rise to positions of influence in the city. We will be in the upper echelons of the city and then we will therefore make sure that everything uh, you know, goes our way. You can fill a stadium in North America teaching that, but it's the opposite of what Jesus said. Because in verse 43, Jesus says, not so with you. But what does that mean? When Jesus says, here's how everybody else is exerting their influence. Not so with you. What does that mean? Does that mean that, um, you know, we're supposed to withdraw from society? Christians are not supposed to be involved in the public square. Just keep your faith private. Don't talk to anybody else about it. Don't bring your Christian worldview to bear on your, on, on, uh, you know, your, your world, your life, as you do life in the city. It doesn't mean any of that at all. We're not supposed to, you know, build a church out in the middle of the desert and live in a holy huddle and just say, well, you know, if God wants to reach someone with his grace, he'll do it. No, that's not what it means at all. But when Jesus says, not so with you, this is about influence, because the conversation, the context of this is the disciples want influence. Their paradigm of influence was shaped by the culture. So Jesus gives them a new paradigm of influence, which is shaped by the cross. See, legislated Christian ethics does not draw you to faith in Christ. And the kingdom of God rules and reigns in hearts. And legislated Christian ethics sure would make life a lot easier for a Christian. But legislated Christian ethics does not make anybody a Christian. It is... As you hear the gospel, the grace of God causes you to trust in God and trust in Jesus. And that is to be, that is what it is to have the kingdom of God expanded in a true way, in the way that Jesus is talking about. So what Jesus says here, when the people are under Roman rule, is totally consistent with what God said centuries later when the people of God were under Babylonian rule. Totally consistent. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 7, it says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if the city prospers, you prosper. And the key word there is they're in exile. So in other words, the kingdom has never expanded through top-down legislation that aligns with the Christian ethics of Christ, it has always expanded, and today it is expanding, through men and women who are transformed from the inside out, bending their knees to the lordship of Christ, because their hearts are gripped by the grace of Christ. So regardless of whether we have leaders or laws that are congruent with our ethics, Christ's church could thrive under any government. Christ's church has always, globally and historically, thrived. Under any government. We serve the flourishing of the city under any government, because our lives are in the hands of God, not the government. And even this morning as Susan was praying for those countries where where the Christians are being persecuted with their very lives, this week, this still happens globally. It's difficult for us as North Americans to wrap our minds around this because Canada's—you know—when uh, I say Canada, I mean you know, uh, colonized Canada celebrates 100 and you know, 50-something years old. Uh, America, you know, they celebrate their independence 240 years old. We're like the adolescents of the world. We're so young. But globally and historically speaking, there's no country that ever looks back on their history and goes, remember when this country was seemed to be founded on Christian ethics? There's no other country in the world that looks back with that kind of uh, euphoria or fondness about Christian ethics. Christ church has always thrived, regardless of who's in government. And so for us as North Americans, and by the way, since I just opened that massive can of worms, it's very popular for the modern Christian to say, Remember when our country was founded on Christian ethics? Really? Have you taken a history course on how this country was founded? It was founded on bloodshed, Canada. You know, America, America, if there's any Americans in here. Our countries were founded on bloodshed. So you may find some silver lining of some particular things in particular ethics that resemble Christian faith, no doubt. But to say the country was founded on Christian ethics, please. Our Lord and Savior didn't shed anybody's blood. He shed his own blood. So no. So the, when we talk about the kingdom of God being expanded, we're talking about hearts and lives. of Men and women turning to Christ. Now, verse 45. Jesus brings all of this to, to, to back to his point, back to his mission, back to the gospel. And he says, in verse 45, he says, he came to be a ransom. And in the Greek, that, that phrase, became a ransom for many, is lutron antipolon. Lutron, lutron is the word for ransom. We don't use the word ransom very much, because for us, it's in the context of kidnapping, really. Right? Like, when else do you really talk about ransom? You're talk, that's what you're talking about. But in the ancient culture, lutron, that word was used all the time. Because ransom for them meant the payment that you paid to cover the debt of a slave and procure their freedom so they talked about ransom all the time people were talking about their ransom all the time because either they were working for their own freedom they would pay back the master and then they were free or somebody else was paying it. but ransom was a constant conversation in the ancient world so it says lutron then it says ante which is debate in exchange for and then polon which is many okay so when jesus says here's my mission." I came to be this ransom for many. He's giving himself up as payment. He's the substitute. And that couldn't be further than what the disciples were fantasizing about. To come as a substitute. They are not interested in that plan whatsoever. Jesus says, I've come to be a ransom for many. They are arguing over who's greater. They are jockeying for position. They're lobbying for seats in Jesus' new cabinet. They can't fathom a Messiah that pays. They want a Messiah that makes you pay. A Messiah that rolls into town and makes everybody else pay. That's the Messiah that they want. They they don't want Jesus paying ransom. They want Jesus coming in and saying, You listen to me, Rome. I have a very particular set of skills and I will not pay your ransom. (laughs) Skills that make people like me a nightmare for people like you. That's what they want. And so the debt in question <laughs> is sin against God. This is the debt that has to be paid. Sin against God. If you're new here, exploring Christian faith, when I say sin, I don't mean a list of bad things that can be overcome by a list of good things. It's not that simple. That's not, that, when the Bible talks about sin, that's not what it is. The original sin, is in Genesis 3, was our parents saying, we do not need God, we will be our own God. That's original sin in Genesis 3. That's what it is. It's divine treason. So you can't simply overcome a list of bad things by living a life with a list of good things and be like, I've paid my ransom. It's impossible. That's not what it is. Sin, this divine treason against God since Genesis 3, this is why we have a common enemy called death. If you're here this morning and you're Christian or agnostic, regardless of your worldview, we all have a common enemy called death and it's because of sin and the divine pen. Death is the divine penalty for sin, so sin is a sinful condition. It is a condition that we are born into, and so the cross might be hard for you to grasp for those of you searching this morning. As you're having conversations with with people about your faith, when you know why you're Christian, it's this, you know it's hard. The cross is hard to grasp because people. It's tempting to say, you know, there's these gods that are bloodthirsty in the ancient world, and the Christian God is the same bloodthirsty as all the rest of them, and they all are out for blood. And you just kind of lump them all together. Like, you know, Homer's, uh, Homer's Iliad when, when uh, Armonmon, I can't remember how to pronounce his name. Uh, he wants safe passage into Troy, but he can't get it until he appeases the gods. So he sacrifices his daughter, and then the, the bloodshed shed, and the gods are appeased, and he can go to Troy. And so it's tempting to be like, yeah, no, there's, this, there's bloodthirsty gods in Greek mythology. There's bloodthirsty gods in Egyptian theology. Let's throw the Christians in there this bloodthirsty god. That's what the cross is. No, it is not that. I'll show you why. Because, as I said earlier, our God, Jesus Christ, who came and incarnated him, he didn't shed any blood. He shed his own blood. He was the ransom. That's what he said. Jesus was not a king who came in divine judgment. He came and he took our divine judgment. As Augustine said, from the beginning, God has been giving all that is God to all that is not God. He came as the ransom. For many, And so God can't overlook evil. He can't wink at evil. He can't say, just forget it. Christ came to deal with it. And Christ will return and he will end it. And so this is where Jesus Christ, the king, separates himself from all other gods. Because many gods have a sense of justice and judgment and punishment. But Jesus came to be a ransom to pay the price himself. So this ransom required to pay us To free us from sin and death, it requires this divine level of repayment. The cross is Jesus making the payment. I say that because many people believe that the Christian life is a life of repayment. Some of you who've been Christians for a long time, you may have come from a context where the way that your Christian life is talked about it's like live this way because after all Jesus did that and so after all because he did that you ought to do this and so everything is framed like repayment no if, if any of the kids are taking notes this morning write, write this down very theological no that, that's not the gospel it's not a life of repayment the life that we live is a life of enjoyment The obedience to Christ is a life of enjoyment. The spiritual disciplines and worship and reading the Bible in our homes with our kids and teaching them the gospel, it's enjoyment. Coming here and worshiping, waking up on a, man, if you think I didn't look at that snow outside and not want to come to church today for a moment, then you think your pastor is way more sanctified than he is. I just looked at that snow and I just thought, because I love soup, and I was just like, wow, just bunny slippers and soup. I mean, I don't have bunny slippers, but you you get the image. It's enjoyment. We're not earning anything by being here. We marvel at the grace of God. We marvel at what he's given to us. It's, it's enjoyment. We enjoy all of it. This past week, every single one of us, we had thoughts and words and deeds that were contrary to the love of Christ. Everybody in here, including the preacher. Maybe start, well, starting with the preacher because I know myself more than I know you. Thoughts, words, and deeds contrary to the love of Christ. Which begs the question, how much of our sin did Christ pay for? The past sin? We weren't sinless yesterday. Tomorrow's not looking good for you either. How much did he pay for? All of it. The ransom. Past, present, future. All of it. Our sin is gone. So now then, how do we lead lives of love and service and influence in the city? From a position of an eternal security. But this life is simply not all that there is. It is a liberating freedom. You cannot kill a dead man. And we're all dead men. We were crucified with Christ and we have been raised with him. And that is a liberating freedom from which we engage in the city. Which is the context of this conversation. When Jesus goes into this talk. And so. This is the good news of the gospel. You know this past week. Uh, just yesterday actually. Nigel takes Kung Fu class. And, and as you're moving up through your belt gradings, You of course have to know the martial arts. But on top of that they want to know that you're developing your character. As a person this is important. You know they call it black belt traits. So they give him this sheet. And I, they give me this sheet yesterday. And I look down. So for him to get his, move up to his next belt. He's got to do 20 acts of kindness, and the top of the sheet is labeled selflessness, so I'm looking at this sheet labeled selflessness with 20 spaces to write 20 selfless acts with the dates that you did them, (laughs) let me tell, I'm making a joke about this, but let me tell you something, this is good for the city, I mean, just being humanistic and loving your neighbor and doing good things, even if you're writing the dates down, you do them, the city benefits, so I want you to know this is not a criticism of these folks whose faith is not in Christ who gave my child a thing that says selflessness. But but if your kid ever came out of a children's ministry with a sheet that said selflessness and here's twenty acts of selflessness to show Jesus how much you love him, then you should go to another church. If that ever happened, but the reason why, but the reason why they did it is because they're like, listen, if you want to get your next belt. Tit for tat, you've got to gain from this. And when Jesus says he is a ransom, when Jesus says to his disciples, this is how everybody else is leading with influence, not so with you. Regardless of what is happening above you, around you, regardless of what is happening, what God is doing inside you is deeply profound. And you're able to love and live a life of service. And you're able to do this because I have come to be a ransom. I've paid it all. The Christian faith is not a spiritual dojo. The church is not a spiritual dojo. Where we don't come in here and make sure that God, heaven is watching and God signs off on our good works so he blesses us and we're okay. No. Any act that's motivated by the hope that heaven's watching is not serving, it's self-serving. And Jesus is not inviting his disciples into a life of being self, self-serving. So, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. God doesn't benefit from our good works, but our family does. Our friends do this community here does the city does and so we've been called to lead these cross-shaped lives of love and service you know not because in doing so we're engaging in a divine transaction with jesus but because of god's saving grace we have this increasing desire to imitate jesus if it were not for christ it'd be impossible for us to be accepted by god but here we all sit because jesus paid the ransom And united to Christ by grace and faith, we're children of God. Let's pray.